It's easy to see January as a month of retreat, restraint and resolutions. Yet here at Confect, we're of the firm belief that this dark winter spell is when we need light, life, friendship and a warming glass of burgundy more than ever. And so this episode of Confect Corner is packed full of brilliant, energising ideas and something of a celebratory verve we hope will propel you through the first weeks of 2023. We'll talk to a designer about the alchemy of a good party and what to wear to put a spring in your step. We'll go to Copenhagen to immerse in a new installation by the sculptor James Turrell, which bathes the viewer in light and colour and explores perceptual psychology. We'll pull up a chair with wine importer and expert Rebecca Perry, reflect on the human stories and simple pleasures of taste and self-expression that can be found in wine. We'll meet the inspiring Italian-Brazilian conductor Simone Menezes and hear about a new concept she's pioneered that explores creativity and music. And in a searing audio essay from Spain, we'll ponder on the beauty of a roaring fire and take a reality check on the sheer effort and know-how it can take to make one. For us, this will be a riotous, rich and abundant January. And as we limber up to a new year of plans and projects, we hope this show will provide you with plenty of inspiration. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, and this is Confect Corner. Visual art is one of the most powerful art, together with music. And if we combine it to transmit a message, it can be very powerful. People freak out about describing wine, but you don't freak out describing your dinner. If you, know, if you didn't like what you had in a restaurant, or you know, you wouldn't critique your friend's lasagna. It's kind of like, are you enjoying it? How does it feel on the palate? Is there balance? And again, that's the really important thing. There's no doubt that making a fire is one of those essential facts of life. But as our first winter set in, it turned out that I was a terrible student in the fine art of combustion. Welcome to this episode of Confect Corner. I'm your host, Sophie Grove in London, and I'm delighted to say that the gang is back together. I'm joined once again by Marcella Palak in Zurich and by Gillian Tobias here in London. Hello to you both. Oh, it's so nice to be back with you two around the Confect table. We've managed to wrestle you back from Senegal. <laughs> yeah, hello from my Zurich. <laughs> A real shock to the system. Talk about swing of the pendulum from Dakar to London. The snowy London, yeah. I must add. And Martella, it was so wonderful to see you in Zurich last month, but it's now snowy in London, so the tables are turned a little bit. No, we have even more snow in Zurich. <laughs> it's always under zero and it's fantastic. It looks like a mountain resort here in Zurich. Oh, beautiful. And I everything is working. <laughs> well, quite different to London. Yeah. We're a bit unused to this winter wonderland. Now, we always like to start with something that's caught our attention in recent weeks. So, Marcella, what do you have for us this month? So it's tea time. I have never been to Japan, but recently I've experienced an original Japanese tea ceremony in the middle of Zurich, in the Museum Riedberg. Probably you know it. It's Switzerland's amazing museum for Asian, American and African art. And it's located in one of the most beautiful parks with views to the lake and the mountains. So next time you have to join me there. So there was um, the experience in the Japanese-made tea room was amazing. It was all about awareness, care and delight. And sipping the fine, fine matcha after a little Japanese candy was just a part of it. 
I was invited by the Japanese cosmetic brand Kanebo, but learned that you can book regular tea ceremonies there in the Museum Riedberg, and I will do this for sure, maybe even as a Christmas present. It sounds amazing. I mean, when you mean awareness, care and delight, what do you mean by that? How does it differ from just pouring tea for a friend? So actually there is a tea master, a master of ceremony, and he told us that it takes many years to learn this and you're just observing his slow and absolute perfect movements, how he's preparing the tea before bringing in the cups and everywhere every steps is done so slowly and perfect. So you sink in a kind of meditation and observe him and until the cup of tea reaches you, yeah, it's half of it already. Gillian, tell me about your adventures. What's caught your eye this month on your travels? <laughs> well, I was very, very fortunate that my shoot in Senegal coincided with Dakar Fashion Week. And, you know, it covered a lot of different fashion shows in Milan and Paris and London. And it was a real honour to go to Dakar Fashion Week, which really draws on designers from all over the continent. And you really, really are struck by this very, very distinctive fashion voices that are coming. Dakar Fashion Week was based on Gore Island. It was its 20th anniversary and sort of the theme of it really was African fashion by Africans before the world because this really is on an international standard. But what was incredible was the individuality of the voices. So many of the designers are drawing from their experiences, from their heritage, with a very cool street-style, youth-focused approach. They have such attitude. And I would suggest to any celebrity stylist, Hollywood stylist, to get yourself down to Dakar Fashion Week because you will see such unique pieces there that would turn heads on any red carpet around the world. And it's an interesting moment for fashion because we're seeing this moment of reflection in a sense that this talent is there and how does it disseminate and how do we find our kind of stars of the future and creative directors of the future now in this global global world there's no reason why these people shouldn't shine no and when you turn your attention you realize that i do think a lot of our fashion is too dictated by trends. And there it's really a lot of idiosyncrasy, the sense of confidence and pride to be different. There's a bit of peacocking, but it's bold and it's colourful, clever. And one of the things that I was quite surprised with and took great pleasure in is just watching the people and the guests attending the Fashion Week as well with this tremendous sense of style. I'm very jealous. <laughs> <laughs> You've having this injection of amazing colour and, and mm. life and creativity from a place, you know, that feels very far away from grey London at yeah. the moment. And you now watch my wardrobe choices. <laughs> I'm sure it's had a permanent effect on, on what I'm wearing. But what about you, Sophie? Well, actually, I had an amazing time this week. Natalie Theodosi, Monocle's fashion editor, and I went to a beautiful opening by the London designer, Regina Pio. And it was just so wonderful to see this attention to detail in her new shop, which has opened just off Golden Square. It's a quite a small shop and it's just her stuff but she's almost curated it like a gallery with little 
beautiful rocks and pebbles that she's collected on the beaches down on the Jurassic Coast with her children and she's designed every rail, every piece of fabric has this tactility and artistry which links to her practice and it had that sense of hospitality when you felt you were being welcomed into this jewel box of a shop and it made me reflect on the creativity of retail when it's really done well and done with passion. We had a great chat, a little glass of Prosecco in hand. (laughs) But then it was just lovely to hear about her philosophy, really, how she likes everything to be joined up, hospitality, fashion, textiles, but also just this sense of every button on each cardigan was different and looked like it had been found on a beach itself. And I really felt quite happy and altered once I'd left. Well, it really is the ode to the bricks and mortar shopping, isn't it, as opposed to buying online, where you just you open the door and there's a little ping and you just don't know quite what you're going to discover. And not just that, because, you know, you can go to bricks and mortar, big department store and kind of wonder. In a sense, you feel a little bit unmoored mm. in those you know, giant retail spaces that can be very enveloping and beautiful. But I just love feeling cocooned mm. and being part of one person's creative vision. So I'll definitely be going back there. I'll join you. <laughs> well, next we head to our second home, Zurich. As listeners who've already had their hands on the winter issue of Confect magazine will know, one of this edition's glittering spreads was all about the art of throwing the perfect party. It took place at Zurich's newest spot for combining dining and disco, and that's why it's called Resto Disco Charlatan. It's run by Patrick Calam Longjean. Everybody calls him DJ Pitch. And the venue aims to connect great people with great food, great music, and it's all centered around a giant two square meters golden disco ball. This is a place that knows how to have a little retro fun. And with January upon us, a new year with new parties awaits. We invited one party-goer, lawyer and fashion entrepreneur Hatun Metin, to our Zurich studios to talk about her approach to hosting and also why on and off the dance floor, power dressing is here to stay. I think what's very important is the love you yourself put towards organizing your party. And I think this is exactly what we felt at the Charlatan party. I think they made such a great effort to organize this evening that once you arrive there as a guest, you're already in a super good mood because everyone puts so much effort, so much love. So I think this is also my personal approach whenever I do a dinner party at my home, at my place, then I would really think of a little concept, not too extravagant but I would always think of a little concept to have so that I myself am super motivated and then hopefully my guests show up super motivated as well. Beforehand, it's quite good to be a perfectionist, but then once the party started, I think it's so important to let go. I think there's a magic, a kind of alchemy to parties that is, you know, somebody was saying, a colleague, in fact, it was Josh Fennett at Monaco, was saying there's a phrase, collective effervescence, where you're kind of, it's sort of a build. And sometimes parties just hit that moment where mm-hmm. you really feel kind of a sense of joy. And I think that you maybe hit that at this party. I wasn't there. What would you say, Marcello? Yeah, I suppose so, because we could have stayed much longer. Actually, you know, people 
should have gone home at at the point when we stayed after eight hours or so, but we could have continued <laughs> all night dancing. <laughs> and this is for me, this is a proof that it's just, you know, it's in a flow and it's fun. And somehow it gets also this sexy imperfection, which I think is very attractive. Hatun, you have two outfits represented in the magazine. Yes. <laughs> so there I was changed. an outfit change. <laughs> Very <love> important. <laughs> but the first is actually a piece, an ensemble, but from your own brand, mm-hmm. which is a suit. And you look absolutely beautiful in this piece with a little tie. And just tell me a bit about Amigachi, which is your brand. You're a lawyer and, you know, an entrepreneur. So yes. give us a sense of the brand and where it came from and how you styled that look for the evening. Yes, it's true. First and foremost, I am a lawyer. And a few years ago, I started my own legal practice. And when I started this, I knew I also wanted to develop a more creative part professionally in my life. And this is when I came up with the idea of maybe having upcycled fashion and modified vintage stuff that you can really use also and wear in the corporate world. When I was in the corporate work and when I was in the corporate world working, I sometimes felt a bit, I want to say bored and a bit restricted in terms of what I can wear. And I think with my upcycled pieces and the modified vintage items we have, you can really be still classical, but at the same time, very professional. And so when it came to the party, I knew I wanted to wear something in order also to show it. And I kind of pimped it up with the pink shirt beneath it. The shirt itself is not for my collection, but the suit was. And the suit used to be just a very, not super, but in a way a granny looking suit. And I just decided to make it a bit tighter and a bit shorter and changed a little bit of the silhouette. In a sense, I'm seeing a, a revival of the jacket, the kind of the big jacket and tailoring for women has changed quite significantly in fashion terms. I was in Milan a couple of weeks ago and there was a lot of amazing women who were just simply wearing menswear and really mm-hmm. beautifully so. I feel that it's actually just such a great moment for suiting and tailoring for women. What would you say, Marcella, I know you love a jacket. <laughs> How often do you wear a kind of beautiful piece of tailoring in the evening and how would you recommend people to kind of make sure that you just style it up to give that element of glamour rather than the sort of business connotation yeah I think really jacket gives you a shape gives a form to your body and this is elementary I think because actually you can wear it also without the combination so just wear a pair of jeans with it or a t-shirt but the jacket gives you just you feel dressed up and for evening I mean then at some jewelry or a great scarf or whatever or I'm wearing it with like uh, colored sunglasses and then you're already done that you look great I know you would love it too actually I think most of the women discover a jacket because they feel just dressed up with almost nothing and they feel in the same way very relaxed I feel sorry for some of the dresses in my wardrobe sometimes <laughs> because they just get jilted for like a couple of velvet jackets that I have a kind of a smoking look which is so easy to mm. wear would you say that was one of the draws of your brand and why women come to you in general I think there is a revival of the suit for women as you also have mentioned at this point I also ask myself sometimes how come that this revival happened just now because it looks so great on everyone and right now there is for sure a revival everyone is wearing it When I started the label, for me, 
the most important thing was to have a certain special twist on every piece so you can wear it and be traditional but to have this very special twist i think this was why i came up with the idea and to be honest i think i haven't invented the idea maybe in this 80s or so big brands like Meso Margiela, they also did something like this. So I think the idea was there already. And what's special about my brand is that I do everything here in Zurich. I source the dead stock clothing and the dead stock materials, everything from Zurich. And I also produce them in Zurich. It's interesting because I was speaking to a, a tailor, fashion designer, Efti Chia, who's a Greek designer in London. We we're talking about power dressing and how, you know, this phrase, it is quite political. It is almost very complicated to explore, especially in a few minutes that we have. But she was saying a lot of women working in the corporate world do feel more powerful in a very great piece of tailoring and that power for everyone is obviously very, very personal. But you can really boost your confidence and feel ready to kind of tackle the world in a great suit. And do you feel as a, a lawyer yourself that you feel that there's a place for a suit in every woman's wardrobe. Yes, I totally agree. I think the empowerment part of a suit is so true. I always wear my pieces that, as I mentioned, are not so traditional. I even wear them at court hearings. And so far, no no judge, no state attorney complains. Um, <laughs> so, and it's true that whenever I wear them, you also feel covered. You are professional. But at the same time, it's super comfortable. You don't worry too much. You just use your hands the way you want. So it gives you a lot of freedom. And with freedom, I think also some kind of power also comes with freedom. I mean, what would you say, Marcella, comfort obviously is freedom. And that sense of clothes that make you feel personally kind of... I, power is a funny word, but it does really apply. And it's complicated because you see this idea that you're appropriating sort of a men's palette and getting these big shoulder pads and sort of being 80s power. It's sort of not really a reflection of the era, but yet some of the concepts there are still quite true. What's your take on the, the idea of power dressing? Yeah, I think it's also kind of protection, you know, if you have those shoulders and yeah, like I said, this shape, think even in more extreme forms like a uniform, a marine uniform, for example, this is also very solid material. This protects you. It's not only about men and women because I had a nice encounter recently. I met a man, actually an art director, I must probably say. And he was wearing a suit, a soft, nice indigo blue suit and said, wow, what's that? And he said, it's from my girlfriend, actually. She wears <laughs> it oversized and I'm wearing it like this. Nice. And yeah, so I think this was very, very nice. I love that. That's a great story. And the kind of completely ambidextrous wardrobe is something quite to aspire to, maybe. <laughs> no, I agree. And actually, Amigachi pieces, I mean, since they are a bit oversized for women, I have men buying them and wearing them. So I think... It's maybe the future to have one wardrobe for, for both. <laughs> for the couple. Yeah. <laughs> the fashion entrepreneur Hatun Metin there, speaking to me and Marcella earlier in Zurich. Now let's go to Denmark to explore the wonderful work of American artist James Turrell. Known for his work with light as a material, Turrell has long theorised how humans are affected by space, light and colour. 
His new immersive installation, Aftershock, is now on display at the Copenhagen Contemporary. Created specifically for the gallery, it's heavily influenced by his studies in perceptual psychology, enveloping the viewer in light and colour. Convex Grace Charlton went along to the exhibition to experience this pastel sensory shower herself. The Aftershock installation by James Turrell is a pastel-hued and light-filled sensory experience currently on show at the industrial art space Copenhagen Contemporary. We spoke to Mary Lalberg, CC's gallery director, to find out more. Well, I'm a very new director here at Copenhagen Contemporary, so I started 1st of August. So actually, the James Turrell project is a piece that I inherited entering the institution. But he's really one of my artistic heroes. I always admired his work very much. I feel like he's really a pioneer in making color evaporate into space. The feeling that you can actually walk into a painting that immerses you completely. I think that this particular piece is very aptly placed in the institution. Actually, James Turrell created this work specifically for Copenhagen Contemporary because one of the things that characterize our spaces here in Copenhagen is that they are huge. So CC is a very new institution, a very young institution, and it was created in Copenhagen because the city was really lacking a space that could show contemporary art on the art's own premises. It's an old industrial building and it was refurbished by a Danish architect called Dorte Mandrup. She's one of the most famous architects in Denmark and the spaces are very raw. She used very simple methods to recreate these old industry buildings. So um, we're able to show artworks that would in other institutions be hard to present just because of their size or because you have to take care of not ruining the building, these kinds of things. We're very free. It's a very open situation for us. When entering Aftershock, visitors are asked to not take photos and remove their shoes so as not to scuff the white floor that seamlessly curves upwards towards the walls. An LED screen beams a spectrum of pastel colours with varying intensity of light until they eventually start strobing to transcendental effect, a Tyrell signature that he refers to as Gansfeld, a German word for the loss of depth perception. The experience lasts around 10 minutes that go by in a moment, although it can be difficult to surrender to it at times. And I think actually it says a lot about the way that James Tyrell works, because when you see his work, they're so immersive and really spectacular that maybe I think for a lot of people, the first impulse would be to take a selfie or to photograph your experience. But his work comes from a much earlier context of art. So actually it's all about presence. It's all about being in the here and now and to be very sort of physically and visually aware in the situation and then be somehow transported into this parallel sphere that you feel that the physical surroundings are maybe getting out of your hands. And James Turrell developed these, it's called a Gansfeld, and it has really to do with 
eternity and infinity in a way. And his work comes out of a context in the 1960s where a lot of US artists were being really, really inspired by the entire space race and you know going to the moon, exploring the universe. This was connected really in the period, of course, to warfare, to the Cold War, but also to a great deal of utopianism, like space could be this place where anything is possible. So actually Terrell worked with some of the NASA scientists to because they were training astronauts to be in a, a situation without gravity or in complete darkness, these kind of experiences that they were preparing for going into space. And that actually, that physical, very different environment really inspired artists to develop these kind of limitless artworks. And I think it's really about losing your habitual way of being present in the space and this experience is both really really fascinating but also scary and I think he's very elegant in the way that he creates a situation where, where you're in both sensory modes at the same time it's not like it's just beautiful colors and it's not like you're completely shocked, but you're sort of hovering between these two states of minds. So there's also a lot of a loss of control in a way that the work speaks to you in such a physical way that your nervous system and your sensory system starts to make these sort of automatic reactions that the colors change and you have after images and these kinds of things. It's an artwork that creates a situation where you're not in complete control. And you have to accept that and give yourself over to the artwork. Thanks, Grace. Coming up, we refuse dry January and join Emile Wines for a tasting. Meet Italian-Brazilian composer Simone Menezes and try to start a fire. You're listening to Confect Corner. And now to wine. Yes, this may be the month of the year where many try a detox from the festive hedonism, but here at Confect, we think a little sparkling wine and gougere is all but an essential to keeping spirits high. This sentiment is shared by Rebecca Perry, the director and buyer at Emile Wines, a wine importer, distributor and online retailer based in East London. Specialists in Burgundy and champions of the region's natural winemakers, Perry's women-led operation lets passion and storytelling drive the way they do their business. She joined me alongside our deputy editor, Chiara Rumella, with four gorgeous wines to talk through the story of Emile's down-to-earth approach to importing and tasting wine and why natural wine doesn't have to mean it tastes like kombucha. We started at June 2020, so that was kind of lockdown two, I think. I've kind of lost track. Also Brexit, so um, it was a slightly tough time to be starting a company. But I'd worked in wine prior to that for 15 years, and my sister had worked in restaurant management. Both of the companies we worked for no longer exist after lockdown, so we were thinking what to do. So we thought, why don't we try and do this by ourselves and kind of drawing on you know, the relationships I had with growers in France, but also kind of building on my own portfolio and I think bringing together wines that no one else was bringing into the UK. 
I mean, obviously, the selection that we have in front of us is very, very enticing. I want to ask you how you go about making that selection, what kind of growers you get involved, and also... Obviously, the female-led nature of the business is yeah. very important to you from the point of view of being an importer. How important is it to get female-led businesses across the whole chain? Is that something that is part of the considerations as well? It absolutely is, but it happened in quite an organic way. So just like an organic viticulture is something that is very important to us and runs throughout the portfolio, whether people are certified organic or not. But again, that wasn't a kind of conscious thought. So when I was starting up, I had 15 growers and a very famous journalist who I know very well called me and said, who or what is a meal and what are you doing and you're setting up by yourself? And he said, oh, so you're an organic specialist. And I was sort of on the phone. I was like, yes, yes, I am. And, like, and, I, and then I looked at all the producers and I was like, there's 15, 14 of them are working organically, half of which are certified. And then again, the question does get posed a lot. Do I only work with female winemakers or, you know, is that something we consciously go and look for? It isn't, but again, it's just like I've built up these relationships with all of our growers over sort of the last sort of decade. And they say with working with us, there's like a different sensibility, like the way we do business is just different. But also when they say they love tasting with us because they feel that it's a very different experience than if you've got sort of 10 guys in the room wearing chinos, all kind of showing off, we kind of bring a different sort of feel to that. And I feel, although over here, we, our sort of customer reach is incredibly broad. We sell to lots of Michelin-style restaurants, lots of bars in sort of East London. We kind of cover the whole sort of demographic because I think we're sort of doing things a bit differently and thinking about things in a, in a different way. Well, I love um, the fact that you do try and dispel some of the myths around wine. Just looking at your website, there's you know, a huge section dedicated to wines under £20, for Yeah, instance. which is really important. It's hard. Buying expensive wine is pretty easy. You don't get much of it. You know, your sort of allocation might be six bottles, or but that's easy. Yep, it's delicious. Finding wine that's, you know, great value, farmed properly, you know, and has sort of good ethos and philosophy behind it is, like, the most difficult. And you have to wade through a lot of stuff you're not prepared to drink to find the one. So well, when I'm you glad do. you're doing that for us. <laughs> <laughs> and we're presented with the cream of the crop. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we're not doing dry January on this show, as you can see and hear, but we want to talk through a few wines today for people who are entertaining during the winter, those cosy dinner parties, little soirees. So we might start with a sparkling offering here. Would you like to just explain a little bit about Le Petit Beaufort? Absolutely. So this is from Domaine Alice and Quentin Beaufort. Quentin is the winemaker. And this comes from this very sort of little known region just outside of Champagne. So you've got the sort of the south of Champagne. And then after that is actually Burgundy, which not many people know. And it's this region called the Chatillonnet. But technically, this is Cremant de Bourgogne. But Quentin can't sort of cope with his wine being classed as Cremant, so he doesn't put that anywhere on the label. He just puts Van Effervescence. But it's like an extension of Champagne. So I think Champagne, again, is this quite sort of, you know, region that's kind of monopolised by all these grand marks where there's no sense of place. You know, they're just buying in grapes. They're making a consistent product. You know, you have the guy in the cellar is just trying to, you know, consistently, so your Moet or your Verve tastes the same year on year. What's the fun in that? Burgundy is somewhere that's so, and Champagne is somewhere that's so marked by vintage. You want wines to be different, you know, to reflect the year in which they were made. So this comes just south of Champagne, and it's a blend of Pinot Blanc and Pinot Noir made in exactly the same way as Champagne. It's a bit hard to see, but you've got this beautiful sort of, like, onion skin, sort of slightly pinky colour, which comes from the Pinot Noir. Swilling it around our glass, like you. 
It is a beautiful colour, and this is a 2017 vintage. It is, vintage. so it's had a long time resting on its leaves, which are the dead yeast cells. So that's what you're paying for with champagne. You want It's quite a laborious process. You know, it's not like wine that you sort of bottle it after 12, 18, 24 months, and, you know, you, you keep it a lot longer in the cellar. But you get these lovely, you get that slightly brioche kind of note, and that's because it's rested on these dead yeast cells, essentially, in the bottle. So he bottles that for us to order, so it's left on the leaves for all that sort of time. So you get this lovely sort of texture to the wine, and... I don't think people think about texture enough. How would you describe this as a texture? For me, that actually is quite difficult to summon. You've got got this lovely kind of firm acidity, but also like the length. It's not one-dimensional. You know how some wines kind of, they're all up front and then they completely disappear? That's really kind of, you know, you can still taste it kind of seconds after. It's still there sort of lingering. But there is a richness on the palate as well. There's like a richness of fruit. There's kind of some sort of smoky kind of aroma going on. It's got this kind of white floral element, which I think comes from Pinot Blanc. Again, people freak out about describing wine, but you don't freak out describing your dinner. If you, know, if you didn't like what you had in a restaurant or, you know, you wouldn't critique your friend's lasagna. It's kind of like, are you enjoying it? How does it feel on the palate? Is there balance? And again, that's the really important thing that I think with wine, it's acidity, it's texture and it's balanced. Everything feels in the kind of the right place. I've actually finished mine while you were talking. (laughs) No, but I really admired that commitment to open up also the language of it because I think a lot of people feel like they don't have the language. Whilst, as you say, if I received a plate of food, I'd probably just describe the sensations I'm feeling without feeling like I'm overreaching. Whilst right now, I'm worried I'll say the The wrong wrong thing. thing. So next time, I will give you a little bit of a try (laughs) and And see what comes out of it. Now we're going to move on to your own wine, which is a beautiful, I mean, just superficially, label, which is designed by Francis Costello, who's an amazing illustrator. But tell us about this wine and I'll pour you a little splash. So we found this wine on our first trip to Burgundy as a meal, so in the autumn of 2020, made by husband and wife in a village called Preilly, which is just outside the main town of Chablis. Absolutely loved the wine, you know, tasted with them at their kitchen table... The wine was such good value, which you know you rarely kind of come across. And I was like, kind of hate the label, but the wine's so great. You know, you know, I obviously appreciate a great wine label, but often some of the greatest wines have pretty boring labels. But with this, we you know we brought it back. Everyone loved the wine, and they're like, you know, it's amazing. It's from vines just outside of Chablis, and its viticulture is organic, made by this husband and wife. You know, it really spoke of what we're doing at a meal. You know, family domains, farming in you know an organic way, and making beautiful wine. And we were selling it a lot to restaurants, sort of by the glass, but. When people saw the bottle, they were just like, "Mm, you know, I'm not really interested in that. So we thought we always wanted to do an own label, but it had to speak of what we were, not just finding some plonk from goodness knows where and sticking our name on it. It had to sort of speak of what what we do. This is very much also your brand. When you look on the website, there's this wonderful sense of illustration and it is quite feminine. Yeah. Very creative and very colourful. Absolutely. And we think that's a really important, you know, we do want to sort of attract a more female client base because traditionally, you know, it is normally men that are buying wine. There are lots of female sommeliers, but they do tend to be men. And we want to bring this kind of fresh, playful side to wine. We've got a very serious product and we, you know, we know what we're talking about, but it doesn't need to be this kind of stuffy elitist thing that people feel sort of, you know, scared or intimidated by. People will go to this wine and they do go to it because they love the label and then they taste the wine. They're like, oh, it's from Burgundy and oh, it's from Chablis. And what's that again? Is that a region or a grape? And it's kind of demystifying all this stuff that is kind of 
promoted in this kind of really bizarrely kind of elitist sort of way. It's also, you know, with the website, everything is illustrated because it's really hard taking a picture of a bottle and it making it look enticing. You know, it's just sort of lots of white labels with writing on them. So we wanted to sort of bring people into our world and just make it a more sort of enjoyable experience I think well tasting this I can see why it is (laughs) it is a very enjoyable (laughs) experience being part of this world I'm gonna go out on a limb Mm -hmm. and say that to me this feels quite high on the palate at the beginning yeah and then it ends up with a very buttery soft kind of rounded atmosphere how far off am I I think that is spot on so you've got the hallmarks of okay so this isn't Shabli it's from just outside but it is it's you know the vines sit just outside the village and you've got this lovely, this intrinsic sort of mineral kind of salty kind of vibe but then you've got this lovely richness of fruit and that buttery kind of element that's kind of inherent in Chardonnay naturally. You know, this isn't like a sort of People think they hate Chardonnay because there's really big, rich, super buttery styles that became very fashionable in the 90s. So everyone now says anything but Chardonnay, which I find very annoying because Chardonnay is so sort of dynamic and it's how it's grown and also what you do with it in the cellar. But I think that's spot on. I think that's exactly right. Okay, so you mentioned anything but Chardonnay. Chablis is also Chardonnay. I think people forget they that do. sometimes. They do. You know, people tell me I hate Chardonnay, but I love Chablis, and I'm like, okay, but I've got something to work with here. I will find you something <laughs> that you will, that you will like. So this is made by an incredible producer called Asnace de Beru, Chateau de Beru, and she's making incredible Chablis. Her family estate dates back to like 400 years. She didn't take over until 2004. Came back from working in Paris in finance, and just came back to her family domain after the death of her father and completely transformed the vineyards, started farming organically and biodynamically, and also making wine in quite a natural way. Now, I have a slight sort of issue with the term natural because people sort of throw it around, they don't really know what it means. It's not really a definable term. They are now trying to define it, but there's a lot of backlash against that. By natural, I think, you know, you're, you're farming organically and biodynamically, but also... You know, she's using very little sulfur in the cellar. All wine has sulfur in it because it's a byproduct of fermentation. But she's choosing to add very, very little, or sometimes none at all, depending on the vintage. And this is where that textual thing really comes into play here, because this has got all that saltiness and richness, but it's like there's so much texture on the palate. It's quite vegetal. It's got that real sense of like almost like celery yeah absolutely that kind of a sort of like ripe green note which I absolutely love in wine it's kind of when you say green and often in in French they say bitterness and in English that kind of sounds like a really derogatory sort of term but there it's kind of to add complexity it's not all just kind of sunny fresh fruit I'm totally getting the celery it's interesting even the bottle is very kind of sort of sincere kind of classic label yeah doesn't look like it's got that kind of biodynamic, sort of kind of hippie, natural... That's what I love about it. And I feel like that's what a lot of our portfolio comprises, is these kind of new wave producers in Burgundy, all kind of like late 30s, early 40s. They've inherited the family estate, but, you know, they've travelled. They're open to sort of other ideas, and they're taking the best of the classic region. And Chablis is an incredible region, but they're kind of like constantly honing it, constantly making it better and, you know, having new ideas. And I think that's just... Super exciting. But again, this does feel quite sort of classic. You don't feel it tastes like kombucha. You're not like, oh, it's funky, which is like... Which is really, I have to say, my objection to some natural wines. Absolutely. I love kombucha, but this is £38. (laughs) I don't want to pay £38 for kombucha. I'm sure you can, but I think that's nonsense. And the cloudy... I mean, talking about risk, sometimes you have a natural wine, certainly in East London, and it's cloudy and it's really, really pokey. And you sometimes think... 
what's happening to this yeah. to me. <laughs> and then you're sort of told you don't like something, they're like, oh, it's natural. And I'm like, that's just lazy. And I think a lot of the time people don't know what they're drinking. They don't know what, where these wines are coming from. I'm not sure the Psalms do either. It's just, you know, you can barely understand a wine list and a lot of bars in East London. But I feel like there's a more grown-up side to natural wine if we're going to sort of stick a term on it that's just taking wine with more freshness, more life, more sort of vivacity, but with this kind of historical grounding. I'm glad that it comes to me to introduce our final and I hope quite a kind of robust end to the segment. We have a Côte de Nuit Village by the domaine Henri Nodin Ferrand. I never lived in France. Sophie did, so I hope that I did justice. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) But I would love for you to tell us a bit more about this. So this is our only red today, and it's a Pinot Noir made by an incredible winemaker called Claire Nodan, but the domain is still in her father's name. And for me, Pinot Noir is all about elegance and finesse, so it's quite a sort of hedonistic, it's all about the perfume, it's almost, you know, smelling it is as pleasurable as drinking it. And then you've got these, again, lovely freshness, lovely texture, but... Pinot Noir is expensive because it's difficult to grow. It's very finickety because it's got very thin skins. So if anything happens, you know, if it's too hot, it gets burnt very easily. If it hails, the berries get shot to pieces because you've got these very thin skins. But when it is successful, I just think there's nothing like it. And people sort of often say about wines like, oh, this Malbec is Burgundy-esque or it's Pinot. No, it isn't. You know, you, you can't touch Pinot Noir. And it has this kind of hedonistic element to it, which I just think is, you know, glorious. Does it kind of dances yeah 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 it's quite amazing i never really believed that smelling wine was as good as tasting it but that one actually (laughs) almost convinces me (laughs) it's fantastic it has a a really open kind of nature to it it doesn't close your mouth up it actually just makes you want to open it up and it has this kind of lightly charred almost aspect to it which i love smoky element which is kind of you get that from the soil but i also think you you get that a lot from pinot noir but those sort of rich but silky tannins are and again this is not it's not a super expensive wine i think it's 38 pounds it's you know which i think for something this good is great value That was Rebecca Perry, the director and buyer at Emile Wines. You can check out their selection at emilewines.co.uk. Marcella, I wanted to pick up on this theme of dry January versus keeping your spirits high. Do you tend to adopt the trend at the start of the year? Tell us. Actually, I hardly heard about dry January. This must be something (laughs) British. How about you, Sophie? No, I I don't practice dry January because I feel the one month where I do need a lovely cosy whiskey by the fire or a lovely Burns night supper is January. And if I was going to do a dry month, which I'm actually not, I'd like to do maybe dry July because it's fabulous and you can be swimming. You don't need that little cosy tipple. So, no. I'm in full agreement with you. I think of all months, January is so dark, especially here in London. And I think we really need our favourite glass of red wine or a little alcoholic cheer. But I imagine, Marcella, you might have some resolutions. So January comes into force and you think, right, this is the year for more yoga, a healthy regime. This is where the dry kind of influence comes through. Or maybe it's our Puritan background here in in Britain. (laughs) I do last minute resolutions. I will will let you know. We'll we'll, (laughs) we'll hold you to that. (laughs) Next, it's time for a bit of music. 
Simone Menezes is an Italian-Brazilian conductor known for her creative spirit and desire to push the art form in new directions. In many ways, her view of the orchestra is a holistic one, both in how they work and how music relates to other art forms. Together with Cartier, Menezes has been working on the project Metanoia, comprising both live performances and a documentary filmed across Italy. Convex Sophie Monaghan Coombs caught up with Menezes and began by asking her to define metanoia. Metanoia is a Greek word that means meta, means literally beyond, and noia, intellect. In some moment it's translated by uh, changing mentality, but I think the literal meaning is more interesting. And somehow, for me, arts has this impact. Arts can talk with us straight to the heart. I expected to watch a film that was all about the orchestra and music, but so much of it was about different mediums of art. And there's a lot about visual art. And have you always kind of thought about your work as a conductor in association with visual art and how do you see that relationship? For me, the dialogue is very important. The dialogue of other kind of arts and visual art is one of the most powerful art together with music. And if we combine it to transmit a message, it can be very powerful. And I had other projects with visual arts, but Metanoia is one very special because we could use different kinds of visual arts. I mean, we have painters, but also we have places with different architectures, and this is very rich. A lot of the film is dedicated to your ideas about movement and dance, and there's a really wonderful scene where you're conducting this orchestra and then you have dancers kind of creeping around the stage. And again, is that something that has, is really important to you when you're thinking about your work? Are you also really rooted in the movement side of things as well? Absolutely. I like it very much, a sentence of C.S. Lewis. He said that the people think that we are a body and we have a soul, but actually we are soul and we have a body. And the art and the human being has this aspect of this combination between two different elements. And we must be connected with our body and we must be connected with our soul if you want to create an element of art with some integrality. And this is why I try to mix it a little bit in the film. I want to get to your orchestra and how would you characterize the ensemble that you've put together? Okay, my ensemble has, in my opinion, two very strong points. The first is our desire to have a cosmopolitan vision. We are formed by musicians with very different backgrounds that together we want to think about classical music with a much more open view, mixing styles, mixing different arts. And the second point is that we want to do excellence and create an environment very warm. I mean, it's like a family. And I'm convinced that once we have this environment and excellent people, we can get a very, very high level of performance. (laughs) 
So you're talking about having a kind of new way of doing things and how do you see classical music's position in the world at the moment? I'm convinced that classical music is a treasure of humanity and I'm convinced that the new generations has interest on that. And just an example, we see the numbers of Spotify or streamings in general we realize that we have more than 30% of streams of classical music for people very young with less than 25 years old, which is quite impressive. But these people don't have a real contact with classical music. They just go to Spotify and write Mozart or Beethoven. So there is a, an interest in this music, and we just need to take these people by the hands and show them a little bit more about this universe without prejudice. One of the things that I really wanted to talk about was beauty and your idea of beauty. And in the film, there's discussion about the difference between kind of attractiveness and beauty. And you touched then on kind of Spotify and, you know, we're living in a really digital age. In the film, you talk about the relationship with Instagram and how that's kind of reconfigured how we think about beauty. And I'd love to hear you talk about that. Actually, if we see the concept of beauty, the Greek concept of beauty or the concept of beauty in the past, Something beautiful. It was something that was beautiful aesthetically, but also something that has value, something that is good, something that is just. And the beauty was something complete. And today our concept of beauty is something just that gives us some pleasure when we see. And it's a very superficial concept of beauty. And it means that we lose the deepness of the sense of beauty. And when we are able to meet something that is really beautiful, that it can touch us in a very different way, in a very profound way, and we need to find again this pleasure of find the beauty, because otherwise we are empty. And if you, we are empty, we are looking for entertainment. And uh, life is not entertainment, life is celebration, and celebration is very connected with beauty. The conductor Simone Menezes there in conversation with Sophie Monaghan Coombs. You're listening to Confect Corner. And finally, it's time for our essay. The romance of living in the wild can fade, especially when there are so many variables involved in simply keeping warm. Writer Francesca Melendez ponders on the technique and pleasure of starting your own fire to warm up. Four winters ago, I viewed an apartment a few steps from the forest on the slopes of Spain's central mountain range. I remember gazing out of the windows onto the valley below, where snowflakes gently laced the boughs of the pines, and thinking to myself, this is it. When I learned that the place had a wood stove as its primary heat source, I was undeterred. My heart was set. It wasn't just the view that sold me. On reflection, it's possible that my idealism had its roots in a book I'd rather inexplicably picked up when I was still living the single life in the bustling center of Madrid. The book, Walden, is a memoir written by 19th century naturalist Henry David Thoreau, 
that reflects on his two-year experiment of living in nature in Massachusetts. Thoreau was very clear about his decision to move into an isolated house in the wilds. He writes, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately. I wished to confront only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. Now, there's no doubt that making a fire is one of those essential facts of life. But as our first winter set in, it turned out that I was a terrible student in the fine art of combustion. First, there was the question of heft. It is important to state that making a fire is hard work. There is wood to be hauled, there is wood to be chopped, and then there are the thermodynamics. I became obsessed with armchair physics and engineering theories I picked up online, which were of very little use. There is a very specific layering of types of wood for optimal burning. There are pine cones and bark to be collected from the forest floor for kindling. Then there are embers to be stoked. There are drafts of air to be controlled, not always successfully. Black smoke would fill the living room regularly as powerful gusts of wind, sometimes reaching speeds of more than 90 kilometers per hour, would roar down our idyllic valley in the winter. It was probably about the third or fourth time that I contorted my soot-covered arm into just the right position to effectively clean our stovepipe that I realized that wood-fired heating was not for me. I was proud as a reformed city girl to have earned the primal life skill of being able to make fire, but the romance had left me. I now saw the cozy roaring hearth chiefly as a smoke inhalation risk. My heart broke at the realization. I flicked back through Thoreau's Walden and reread the passages on self-reliance. He took it upon himself to construct by hand the cabin that he lived in during those experimental years in nature. He wrote, it did me good to see the soot form on the back of the chimney. Our experiences couldn't be more different. Had I officially failed? Or was I overly focused on the outcome rather than the process of my own experiments in nature? An astute chimney sweep finally diagnosed the source of our fire woes, a chimney cap inappropriate for our windy location. It was the resulting backdraft that had extinguished countless fires, not my novice fire building. Eventually, I also learned that Thoreau had his own struggles with fire. Prior to living on the edge of Walden Pond, the naturalist accidentally set fire to 120 hectares of primeval woodland in his hometown, leading to his being nicknamed Woodsburner thereafter. My own four-year experiment with wood fires ends happily this winter, as I have moved with my family into a home of our own just on the other side of the village. It does not have a chimney. I'll be limited to enjoying the wisps of smoke rising from my neighbors' homes as I look across the hillsides. Those sinuous announcers of the dawn are always up before the sun climbs over the mountain ridge to the east. That was Francesca Melendez. Now, Marcella, you've talked about your love for the mountains aplenty here on the show. I imagine you're pretty good at starting your own fire. 
Indeed, it's the best activity. <laughs> it's the best activity when you come home from the frosty outdoors, you know, to make a little fire, and you're getting better every time. But I'm used also to do fires in Zurich when I came back from Zurich's uh, university. As a student, I lived in an apartment in Zurich with a wood-burning stove. And my trick is a good, nice bellows from Marrakesh or the Swiss Landi outlet. I've got a method where you kind of put your hand into a little kind of almost like a bird call and blow, and that's the same effect as some bellows if you don't happen to have them with you. You've got to kind of sort of temper the air. <laughs> it's very technical. I think Francesca <laughs> really expressed it quite well in the essay. Gillian, growing up in Canada, I bet you came into contact with a few fire starters. Actually, so most of my childhood was in England. But when I did go back to Canada and I was working for Canadian Broadcasting, I fell in love a bit like Francesca with this apartment and partly because it had the most fabulous like cast iron fireplace. I was so excited. And my first night I get my little logs and I put them in there and I light my match. And dark smoke comes billowing out, so much so, like so much smoke, I thought, I'm going to burn the house down. I call the fire brigade. About nine of the most attractive firemen you've ever (laughs) seen in your life come into my apartment. They look at the fireplace, they look at me, they put their hand up and they open this little flue and all the smoke goes up the chimney. You forgot to open the flue, madam. You learnt the hard way. Well, it's quite (laughs) nice, actually, to have all these gorgeous firemen in my apartment. (laughs) I'm not the best at fires, but I did learn my lesson. I think in winter I'm going to sit in front of the fire and read a book whenever I'm near a fireplace. But I'm so mesmerised by the flames, the flickering flames, that my book gets totally put by the wayside. And I just, like a film, I can watch fires for ever the flames. That's a beautiful image. <laughs> well, it brings us, in fact, to the end of this episode of Confect Corner. My thanks to Gillian DeBias and Marcella Palak, as ever. Confect Corner is produced by Carlotta Ribello and Paige Reynolds and is edited by Christy O'Grady. You can reach us at audio at confectmagazine.com. We'll be back next month with more. But until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.